Hi friends, welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast, where we are remembering what it is to be human upon the earth. I am Amber Magnolia Hill. This is episode 85. It is meant to be listened to after listening to episode 84. I am releasing them on the same day. That episode is titled, Our Complex Humanity Cannot Be Cancelled. Some of you do know and some of you don't know that my guest today was canceled um, two, three years ago now. This interview came out a few months before that cancellation. And I took this interview down in the heat of that, out of fear for myself because of all the threats of If you don't, you're a bad person. If you don't cancel this person, then you will be canceled because of the witch hunt atmosphere, which I go into more detail in in episode 84 because there really is a strong connection between the way people behave in actual witch hunts and the way people behave in cancellation campaigns. So this episode originally came out in April 2018. Um, I've left the original intro. It, you know, sets the context for the interview to follow. So we'll be hearing that in a minute here. (laughs) I noticed when I was re-listening that in that intro, I mentioned three other herbalists who have also had cancel campaigns waged against them in that time. So yeah, this episode mentions four canceled herbalists, which... Who knows? Who knows how people are going to react to this? Um, I think for sure people are coming around to see how brutally abusive and inhuman cancel culture is. It seems like people are stepping up and able to think more critically and hold more nuance on these issues. I hope so. I am someone who has gone through my own process here from participating in these cancel campaigns to realizing that it is so out of integrity for me to do that. I would say here that someone who was close to both Sean and his accuser, and I talk more about this in episode 84, said to me at the time, Sean is not blameless here, but there are more lies than truths going around in this cancel campaign. On that note, I am going to quote Clementine Morgan, who I also quote in episode 84, um, she just has a way with words and is saying things better than I can say them. So on her Instagram, she posted, I support the falsely accused and I support people who have been abusive and I support survivors. There is no contradiction there. The caption reads, Quote, Clementine Morgan supports abusers. I've also had this thrown at me, by the way. And then she continues, I mean, yes, I literally do. I support abusers to transform their lives and take responsibility in ways that are compassionate and respect their human dignity and autonomy. I also support people who are called abusers, who are not abusers, and who are in fact being victimized by slander campaigns. And I support survivors with all my fucking heart. There is no contradiction there. Real life is complicated 
but compassion is not. Fuck yeah. Amen. This is where we need to be going. This is where I have been going. This is where I had been too afraid to go on this podcast, but clearly I actually pushed publish on this episode. So I did it. One more post of hers. To the people sliding into my DMs to say, I'd rather support a liar than an abuser. If you are supporting someone who is spreading false allegations to upend a person's life and destroy their relationships, employment, and mental health, you actually are supporting an abuser. That is abusive behavior. The good news is that we don't need to choose between supporting people who make accusations and those they accuse. We can actually take a more careful approach where both sides are heard and both people supported, and where everyone's humanity and boundaries are respected. That is actually what it means to be responsible community members who oppose abuse. Preventing and intervening on abuse is more complicated than simply deciding to believe without question anyone who makes an accusation. Doing that obviously creates a situation where people can use accusations to be abusive. Deciding to be more careful does not mean immediately assuming those who make accusations are lying. It is possible to take accusations very seriously, because they are very serious, while also taking seriously the impact those accusations have on the accused's life and remaining committed to due process. Admitting to the reality of abuse means admitting to the reality that people can be dishonest in order to enact abuse. A culture where we unquestioningly believe all accusations and punish and exile the accused is obviously a culture that abusive people can use to their own ends. So even though I spoke to pretty um, deeply, thoroughly, a person who had been close to this situation and both the people at the time, I don't know what happened. I don't know for sure the truth of it or the details. And I don't need to. What I need to do and what is in my integrity to do is have compassion for everyone involved and realize as I go into deeper in episode 84 that um, shame is not a social justice tool. It's used all the time in social justice spaces, but it doesn't work. And I provide more information on that in that episode. Thank you, Clementine Morgan, for your work and your words. Um, I, over the years since I've deleted this episode, I have had many people reach out to me to ask where it went. Either they had heard it at the time or they had been told about it. And specifically what people speak to is the part of the conversation where Sean talks about neurodivergence. It was so helpful and so healing to so many people. And I had to come back to them and say, oh, sorry, I deleted it because I was afraid of the witch hunt turning on me. Sorry, I'm um, cutting off your access to something that could be super helpful to you, but I'm really scared that I'm going to get canceled. And it's just not in my integrity to do that anymore. I can't stay silent anymore. I have been posting about this, these issues on Instagram for a while and made a statement on medicine stories and cancel culture last year, but it's time for me to come out, talk about it more on the podcast and get this interview back up for the people for whom it is helpful. Um, I will mention here as well that Sean has a new 
um, book out. He has added a middle name and is now using O'Donohue as his last name, which I assume goes back to the traditional Irish roots. Uh, the book is called The Forest Reminds Us Who We Are, Connecting to the Living Medicine of Wild Plants. And sounds lovely. I love the title. And um, Sean's hypnotic languaging has always put me under a spell in which I'm porous and capable of learning in a really sweet way, which I appreciate. Okay, again, I think you should listen to episode 84. And I ask you to please hold space in your heart and in your mind for the complex humanity of all of us. And now you're about to hear the 20-minute introduction that I had originally recorded back in spring 2018. Of course, you're welcome to skip right by it if you want, but there's some good stuff there. And then we will listen to the interview with Sean Pedrag O'Donohue. He does not know that I'm doing this. I haven't run it by anyone other than my husband, who's very supportive. And I don't know. We'll see what's going to happen. I just had to finally listen to my heart and live in my own integrity and make this interview available again for the folks who need the healing that it provides. We share common ancestors with plants, and our biology, our chemistry, even our structure of consciousness are similar. They are sentient beings that share the experience of being embodied on this planet. When we make medicine with them, we are not working with some inert substance. We are connecting with something alive. That is a quote from today's guest, Sean Donahue. I read it in the new book, Herbalist Visions and Visionaries which I will tell you more about in a minute here. First, I'm going to tell you what I talk about with Sean Donahue. Um, Sean is an herbalist, and, you know, let's just do his whole bio right now. Sean Donahue is an herbalist, a poet, a teacher, an initiated priest of the Blackheart line of the fairy tradition of witchcraft. That's F-E-R-I. I I don't know about it, but I'm curious. And a reluctant revolutionary. He is the co-founder with Matthew Wood of the Portland School of Herbal Wisdom and a member of the faculty of the School of Western Herbalism at Pacific Rim College in Victoria, B.C. He is a columnist for Plant Healer Magazine and a frequent contributor to the Gods and Radicals website. Sean is just an incredible human in the way he takes in information, um, both from human and plant teachers, and synthesizes it and then puts it back out in this way that's just so, oh, it just, it kind of hits right to the heart. You know, there's not a lot of like the overmind or the rational mind that gets engaged. You kind of get right into this mythopoetic, dreamy, um, mesmerized state when you listen to Sean speak. And I find that I learn much better in that state of mind. So I've really come to value Sean as a teacher. And I think, you know, if you like this podcast, you are going to love this interview. 
If you're interested in herbalism, you are going to love this interview. If you're interested in ancestry, magic, I mean, you know, after after our conversation was done, I just had the thought that this conversation reminds me a lot of episode nine of my conversation with Ariella Daly because like this is magic. Um, These experiences that Sean describes are so synchronistic and just unbelievably imbued with magic. And you're like, how can those things happen in real life? This sounds like a fairy tale. This sounds like a story just like Ariella's stories that she shared. But these things do happen in real life when we are listening to the call of our soul when we are following the mythic threads of what fascinates us what's interesting to us what we resonate with what feels like it's ours to go after and to learn from so in this conversation sean and i talk about the daily life of the witch in the hut at the edge of the village that would be sean um being neurodivergent autism, sensory gating channels, nonlinear connections, tryptamine in the brain, and so much more. Sean's childhood experiences with asthma, depression, and being misunderstood into a young adulthood of collapsing health and following the wrong path, and finally into a healing, awakening, and journey into herbalism. Sean says, I knew everything I was saying no to and nothing I was saying yes to. We touch on his first psilocybin experience at age 19 and his realization that everything is alive and connected, which really is just a prerequisite for getting to know plant medicine and the natural world. Not psilocybin necessarily, but realizing that everything is alive and connected. How plants can shift our experience of our bodies and our sense of ourselves in relation to the world around us. Um, Drop doses as a underused form of herbal medicine. Sean's deep reverence for and connection with his ancestors, including some truly incredible stories of how magic, myth, and ritual have opened the doors of communication between him and his forebears. Uh, We talk about Ella Campaign, Usnia, and Hawthorne. Um, They're all mentioned here, but Sean really goes deep into the lore and the medicine of Hawthorne at the end. It's really amazing. And I asked about that herb specifically because, one, I know that he has a really close relationship with it. And two, it is almost May and Hawthorne's bloom in May. And it's just the most joyful occasion for me every year when I see those little white flowers pop up all around me. So let me tell you a little bit about this book, Herbalist Visions and Visionaries, um, because it's so incredible. Like of all the herb books I have, I've come to value this one so much because it's interviews with 30, I think 30 herbalists. And they're very um, deep, intense, complex, long interviews. Uh, they were conducted by Jesse Wolf Harden, who was the guest on episode 12 of this podcast called Folk Herbalism and the Wild Self. Um, Jesse and Kiva Rose, they are the force behind Plant Healer, Plant Healer Magazine, The Good Medicine Confluence. And um, they have a lot of books out. And this one, I don't know if I can say it's my favorite, but it might be my favorite. 
So there are, I think, about 10 like big time herbalists interviewed, you know, like Matthew Wood and Susan Weed and just people whose names everyone knows. And then the rest are like small time newcomers who most people haven't heard of, including me. I was the last person to be interviewed for this book and it was such an honor and I'm just yeah <laughs> honored is the word it's um i really appreciate as we talked about in that episode how how wolf and kiva really try to bring new voices into the herbal community so i thought that i would read um three of my favorite quotes from that book and i specifically chose these there's so many quotes i could read like almost every single word in that book is just dripping with golden nuggets of herbal and life wisdom. But these three specifically kind of address um, uh, the burgeoning herbalist, someone new to herbalism, maybe someone who's unsure of their path or how they fit in. And I know that's a lot of people who listen to this show. So um, Kiva Rose says, you don't need anyone else's permission or approval to offer the medicine that you are to the world. Paul Bergner says, when you are in your calling, the universe conspires to help you succeed. And when you are not, the universe conspires to make you miserable. I'm sure some of you have experienced that. I sure have. I had someone write me yesterday and say that because of the podcast, she quit the job that she hated and that was sucking her soul dry. And that's maybe the best thing I could hear. One of the best things I could hear. Okay. And then this quote, I'm going to read it to you first, and then I'm going to tell you who said it. I'm one of the most insecure people I know, and whatever self-confidence I've gained over the years will instantly disappear at the mere mention of having to do a keynote speech or even teach a class. I just never let my own insecurities get in the way of service. So that's Rosemary Gladstar, the um, so-called <laughs> officially designated um, fairy godmother of herbalism. And if someone as revered and accomplished and just amazing as Rosemary Gladstar is can can feel that way then we can all follow her lead and just never let our own insecurities get in the way of service i really love that so i'm going to tell you about um the patreon offering that goes along with this episode i'm so grateful to Sean for for recording this amazing meditation for you. As I spoke about in the last podcast episode, number 15, called Intuitive Whispers, Deep Memory, and Woven Fate, uh, guided meditations are always just so powerful for me. I'm really not a visual or artistic person and just have a hard time accessing some of those like deeper realms of consciousness on my own. But man, guided meditations are just every time like this direct speed train <laughs> right into the depths of me and the, whatever is waiting there to come up, whatever has guidance for me there will come up when I do a, a guided meditation. And I absolutely love Sean's. Um, like I spoke about earlier, he just has this mesmerizing, hypnotic, deeply soothing voice and manner about him. And so it just kind of drops me right into that state of consciousness that I want to be when I do a meditation. So this 
incredible guided meditation is meant to attune you to the echoes of your ancestors' heartbeats using a method that Sean extrapolated from Stephen Buhner's work. Uh, Buhner was the guest on episode eight of this show, and probably many of you are familiar with him and his work around the heart as an organ of perception. It's really incredible. If you're not, you can listen to that episode. He's got a book. He's got many books. And um, he's really inspired a lot of herbalists with all of his work, but really with this idea of the heart as an organ of perception. So I just, I was blown away when Sean first told me about this um, practice that he has of aligning and tuning into his ancestors' heartbeats based on that work. And and it's available for you to follow um, Sean's wonderful voice and drop into that space within yourself over at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, this, as everything, is available to patrons, supporters of this podcast at the $2 a month level. So there are higher tiers with different rewards, but I try to make all of the best stuff, all the stuff that is directly related to each episode of this podcast available at the lowest level so that it's really accessible. Um, If you want to connect more around what we're doing here on this show, I have a Facebook group. It's just called Medicine Stories. You can search for it within Facebook. It's pretty active. There's over a thousand members now, and it's just full of people talking about all the things we talk about on this show. Sometimes people are asking for advice. Sometimes they're just sharing one of their own medicine stories. And it's a really nurturing and sweet space. You can find me at mythicmedicine.love. I have my uh, Mythic Medicinals line of herbal medicines there. We're pretty low on stuff right now because these are all small batch, handcrafted, uh, wildcrafted, either in the high Sierra or here on our land where we kind of have this experimental half wild, half cultivated stuff in between <laughs> situation going on. My husband Owen is really the, uh, the plant grower around here. And so it, it's been amazing when we moved here two years ago, we were able to buy the house and it's on an acre we discovered in that first year over 30 medicinal plants growing on our land, which is, it's especially incredible because the houses, the lots on either side of us don't have nearly that many plants growing. And clearly someone lived here before who, um, who knew, who knew their plants and planted some things. The property was empty for eight years before we got here though. So anything that survived was just growing wild, you know, the violets and the roses and so much more. Um, so we are really moving more towards growing our own plants and herbs for medicine rather than wild crafting, which is what I've been doing for the last 10, 11, 12 years for my own herbal medicines for me and my family as issues around sustainability become more and more important in the herbalist community. Um, This is something that Wolf asked me about in my interview for the Herbalist Visions and Visionaries book, which by the way, you can find at planthealer.org in their bookstore um, or on Amazon. I got mine off Amazon because I wanted it right away. It was so exciting to see, to see it in print. Um, 
this is a really big conversation and it, it's kind of coming to my attention, especially since that last episode that I put out that was just me talking or amber rambling, as I call it, about um, this flower essence that I made from a flower that grows on my land out here. I had mentioned that it was um, a rare flower and I heard from a couple people who were like, why would you pick a rare flower? It's so irresponsible of you to be talking about that. And I realized that though I have been sharing about sustainable wildcrafting for years on Instagram and my website and other places, I haven't really talked about it on the podcast. And so this is something that I'll probably focus on more in future episodes, but I kind of wanted to touch on it briefly. Like, So first of all, rare doesn't equal endangered. Um, I did specifically look this up and check on many websites and, you know, try to make sure that I'm right about this before I say it. But rare means that it grows in a small area. Like, so, you know, plantain is not rare. Dandelions are not rare. They will, they will grow anywhere. But we live on this small um, section of serpentine soil. And there's a few of these in California, but not very many. And we just happened to live on one. We didn't even know it when we bought the house. And we were so thrilled over the course of the first year here as we saw more and more plants. And we're like, what's this? What's this? And slowly realized that most of them are rare. And it's only because serpentine soil is rare. So they're not endangered. No one's harvesting them. Um, they just there just aren't that many of them. And of course, if they suddenly became like these super popular herbs, then they would be endangered. So they're considered at risk, not because they're endangered, just because they are rare, because there aren't that many patches of them in the world. So I wanted to make that very clear. Um, also, the the flower, I made the flower essence from, you know, I just picked one flower head. I picked it off my own land, my own property. There were plenty of them around, but I'm not going to make medicine for sale off of endangered plants ever, ever. Um, you know, the medicines we make are from herbs that are abundant. They grow abundantly either here in the wild of the Sierra where I live or on our land or in our half wild gardens that we're experimenting with. Um, so how we're doing that is collecting seeds from the wild and then either planting or broadcasting them over our land, seeing where they like to grow. And then over the years, we will tend to those patches of wild plants more and keep them, keep them coming on our land. So if you are at all new to herbalism, at all interested in wild crafting, please, please, look up sustainable wildcrafting, read some books, read some articles, listen to some podcasts. There's a ton of information out there. Um, this is a really big deal. You can't just be out there taking plants that, um, that might be endangered. And even if they aren't, they are a part of an ecosystem. They are a part of a bigger ecosystem and they play a role in that ecosystem. So you need to understand these dynamics before you go into the wild with a consumerist or extractive mindset. So the consumerist mindset is like, I get whatever I want. <laughs> I can go on Amazon and buy this book because I want to see it in print and it's here two days later, like this instant gratification society that we live in. It's so easy to 
to fall into that trap. It really is. And I'm sure I did this in my first years as an herbalist. I, I can't really think of a specific moment, but you know, when you get really excited about a plant and you might go out into the wild and see it, or maybe you're like in the wild on a plant walk with, with an herbalist and a group of people and you meet this plant, you just fall in love with it. Like you've never seen it before, or maybe you knew about it before, but this is your first time seeing it in the wild. And you just are like resonating with this plant. It is your herbal soulmate and then you find out it's endangered but like you want this plant you know you you need it you love it you want to take it home you want to pick it you want to make medicine from it you want it on your altar you want to make a flower essence a tincture an oil whatever and so this is the moment to to stop and really think about this consumerist mindset that it's so easy to bring into the wild with us it is absolutely not okay to pick an endangered plant you can check out um, United Plant Savers to learn more about the status of different plants. If you're not sure, just leave it there and then go home and check it out. Um, you know, you can really establish a very deep relationship with a plant just by sitting with it. You don't have to pick it. You don't have to ingest it. You don't have to bring it into your body in any way. You can be next to it, attuning your heart space to it, and learn so much about it and really cultivate and deepen a relationship that way the extractive mindset refers to this um you know kind of overarching cultural way we have of looking at the wild of how can i benefit from this like what what will this thing that i can pull out of the earth do for me without thinking about reciprocity without thinking about again larger ecosystem dynamics so most herbalists talk about this. Any herbalist worth their salt is talking about this. And one resource that I really like is Wholehearted Wildcrafting from Sophia Rose. I think you can find it at gardenparty.love. Um, you can you can just look online or look for books. There's a ton of resources out there. Do your due diligence, do your part, and you know, just have you're, you're going to have such a deeper connection with the plants and with the earth if this is your approach to herbal medicine than if you're just pulling up anything that calls your name. Okay. Thank you for <laughs> indulging that ramble. It's really important. It's so important. And yeah, that's it. Let's get into this conversation with Sean Donahue. It's incredible. It's so moving. I'm so excited to share it with you right now. So here we go. Hello, Sean Donahue, and welcome to the Medicine Stories podcast. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to be speaking with you. I've been following your work for a long time through Plant Healer and the work of Kiva Rose and Jesse Wolfharden, who was the 11th interview on this podcast. And it's lovely to be looking at you right now in your yurt. This is such a nice background for your Skype video. Why don't you tell um, our listeners where you live and like what your what your day to day life looks like? Yeah, I live in a little town called Trout Lake, Washington. Um, we're at the foot of uh, Pateau, which is the mountain the colonial cartographers call Mount Adams, and it's a really interesting place to be because if I go downhill, I'm in temperate rainforest. If I go uphill, I'm in high alpine. If I go over the mountain, I'm in the high desert. And here where 
we are, it's a combination of elements of all of the above. And uh, it's a little town of about 700 people and probably substantially more elk than people. <laughs> and um, I live in a yurt where I am, I guess, literally the the, the witch in the hut at the edge of the village. <laughs> and um, so um, life um, life from day to day, I my morning always begins with my magical practice of invoking the elements to bless all the worlds and working on releasing complexes held within me of guilt and shame and fear and bringing my threefold self that we work with in the fairy tradition, human and wild and divine, into alignment um, for the day. And then what follows will vary. Every other day I go uh, into town down into Hood River, Oregon to uh, hit the gym and get some groceries. Um, Sometimes I go into Portland to teach classes or see clients. I do a fair amount of traveling, but then uh, many days I'm just um, here in the yurt writing or doing distance consultations or teaching distance courses or reading and integrating. And uh, more, more often than not, I take my 14-year-old husky out walking by the water at sunset and check on what's happening in the woods right now. Mm, sounds pretty ideal to me. Yeah. Um, I, thought, I thought we could start to give listeners a sense of who you are by, by you explaining to us this concept that I've, I've only learned about through you and through Kiva in the last few years. And tell us what it means to be neurodivergent. Yeah, so as a culture, we have a very narrowly defined band of ways in which people's perception and expression and experience and cognition of reality tend to be accepted. Um, and really, this has been especially true in our culture over the past 500 years with the advent of capitalism and colonialism that really depend on a mindset in which we see bodies as machines for production and the world as raw material for that production of wealth. And nobody is well suited to that particular way of being. But for some of us, um, the particular neurobiological makeup that we're born with uh, makes it extremely hard for us to assimilate to the dominant culture. And I feel like from an evolutionary standpoint, we would have had a very different life in traditional communities. So my particular form of neurodivergence is autism, which involves um, at a brain level having neurons that proliferate really rapidly forming new connections in nonlinear ways. Um, and it often tends to have an association with a brain chemistry that has a higher level of serotonin, which is the compound that makes us form, make new connections between ideas in 
our world uh, that makes us create new neural pathways and which opens up our sensory gating channels uh, that Stephen Buhner speaks about, those filters through which we um, allow reality in. And we tend to have lower levels of MAO, which is the compound that breaks down serotonin. So serotonin is a tryptamine, just like LSD or just like psilocybin or just like dimethyltryptamine. And so in a lot of ways, autistic brain chemistry is kind of like not knowing quite when your brain will have a chemical profile resembling that of someone who has just ingested ayahuasca. So ayahuasca is a brew that's made up of various plants varying from region, from locality to locality within the rainforest um, that contain a tryptamine and a compound that inhibits MAO, the enzyme that breaks down the tryptamine. So if you have a brain that naturally has a higher level of our main internal tryptamine, serotonin, and naturally has a lower level of MAO than, um, than other brains, then it will be a pharmacological situation similar to um, an internal ayahuasca brew, which tends to make us able to perceive patterns in the world that others miss, uh, which tends to make us have a tendency towards complex, nonlinear thinking, uh, which tends to make us uh, be really good at feeling into all of the complexities of a situation, but really bad at knowing the social rules for navigating those complexities. Um, and so uh, that makes it easier for us to do things like look at broad patterns across human history or read patterns in the clouds or talk with plants in many cases, but makes it much harder for us to do things like go to the bank and deposit a check. Uh, or, you know, we're recording this right around tax day. Try imagine doing your taxes without knowing whether or not you were going to have a sudden onset of, of ayahuasca in your brain. Um, some of these things that are very simple for others become challenging for us in the same way that some things that are very challenging for others are very simple for us. And so my sense is in a traditional culture, a lot of us um, would have been the ones at the edge of the village who mediated interactions with the other than human world on behalf of the rest of the community and often would have less human contact and less human interaction in order to not always be overwhelmed by the sensation and emotion of human actions. In our contemporary culture, though, where everything is focused on structured outward production, most of the time we end up uh, being labeled as thinking and seeing and feeling and moving in the quote-unquote wrong ways. Unless 
our particular interests and gifts happen to be exploitable. So, for example, if you're really good at recognizing um, what is out of sync with the flow in thousands of lines of computer code, uh, then somebody can make money off of your skill. And so you will be valued somewhat. And a company like Microsoft, for example, that has programs to hire more autistic employees um, might put you in a, in a sensory environment that would make it easy for you to work with code and reward you for that ability, although not as much as they rewarded themselves for using that ability. But if your gift is more for... Um, looking at broad patterns in history or um, understanding the ways that water flows or talking with plants, then um, that may not be valued quite in the same way by the dominant culture. And you might, in fact, end up having a pretty marginalized experience. And especially in a culture where we tend to really discourage variation beyond very narrow norms. And uh, those very narrow norms, which we call neurotypicality, probably don't really reflect anybody's most comfortable state of being, but are tolerable for some, totally destructive for others, and completely impossible for some. So... Um, a lot of times when people will talk about autistic people, they'll tend to want to talk, to talk about us in terms of hierarchies of functioning. Um, and I always say if we start talking about function, we need to ask the question, so what is the function of a human being? And our culture has the implicit answer that the function of a human being is to be involved in the creation of wealth whether directly as a participant in the wage economy or the investment economy, or whether as the unpaid labor that makes others' labor possible. Um, and if you don't tend to fit into those modes very easily, then you will be defined as not functioning well as a human being. However, a lot of other cultures have completely different stories about what the purpose of a human being is. Some cultures say our job is to continually sing the world into existence. Some cultures say our purpose is to perceive beauty. Some cultures say our purpose is to be a part of the universe, come into unique consciousness in an embodied way for this particular time. And from all of those perspectives, many of the very same things that would make us define somebody as low-functioning, like the tendency to lie on the ground staring at clouds for hours, might be defined as the height of functioning. So um, we create, pose very, a very difficult question, a very difficult category for the culture. And so there is a whole lot of drive to try to eliminate uh, our existence at the very same time that, you know, people will watch um, 
shows on Netflix where the mutants with the unusual ways of seeing things are the heroes who have the only way to help us find our way out of the mess. Uh, they will be giving money to organizations like Autism Speaks that try that exist for the purpose of trying to make it so there are fewer people like me living in the world. Um, so it's an interesting paradox. I also feel like in a lot of ways, um, it's similar to variations in sexuality and variations in gender. So probably there is no such thing as somebody who perfectly fits one of the two binary gender roles our society has created. And probably there's no such thing as somebody who is only attracted to people who fit um, one of those particular gender roles in a really clear and rigid way. But for some people, maintaining that performance of fitting one of those categories is somewhat stressful but manageable, whereas for others, it is really a fundamental denial of the core of their existence. And I think the same is true in terms of variations in perception and sensation and cognition and communication that we call neurodiversity. Um, nobody is really neurotypical, but for some of us whose brains are naturally structured quite a bit differently than the majority of the culture, um, trying to perform those narrow permitted roles is next to impossible. I think you're doing the world such a service by speaking about these issues. And I'm, I'm really grateful for how you've reframed, reframed this for me. Thank you. Well, I feel really grateful for the people in my life who've helped me to do that for, um, the other autistic people who I'm in community with, uh, who have been part of this constant process of talking with each other and figuring out what it means to be us in the world and what it means to be us in the world being ourselves. And in particular, uh, the work of Nick Walker, who is a scholar uh, trained in psychology really rooted in somatic psychology and also an Aikido teacher uh, who writes a lot about neurodiversity, really turned my life around um, and helped me stop seeing myself as just kind of sucking at life and understand that the things that were challenges for me and the things that were my greatest gifts were deeply interrelated and that... Um, Really, the perspective that we have as neurodivergent people is necessary for the survival of the world. We need neurodiversity just like we need biodiversity. There's a saying in Ireland, um, God put the blight on the, on the potatoes, but the British put the famine on the Irish because it was the enforced policy of creating this, these huge potato monocrops in Ireland and not allowing people to grow or access other food crops that made people starve when that one crop got sick. Um, systems that lack diversity lack resilience. And as a culture, we are crashing into the places where the very narrow bonds of perception that are that have, we've been allowed um, 
have driven us and it's only through opening the way for other ways of seeing and other ways of being that we can hope to survive as a species. I'm curious how this, what you were like as a child and what this whole journey has been like for you of coming into a greater understanding of who you are and how, um, how the herbal world intersected with, with Sean Donahue and how you became this, this eminent herbalist. <laughs> as a child, I was very confused and very lost. Um, from a very early age, I identified with stories of beings who found themselves in the wrong world and had to find their way home to the right one. And um, from a very, very young age, I was really conscious of the background level of pain and grief in this culture, which I think all of us to some degree have an awareness of even if it's an unconscious awareness that i think all of us to some degree feel the suffering of other beings and feel how destructive this particular cultural path is and feel the amount of um unnatural death as uh, that is behind this way of life but Many people have the capacity to compartmentalize and put that aside. And one thing about autistic brains is we're not especially good at compartmentalizing. And so, um, you know, as a kid growing up in suburban Massachusetts in the 80s, I was really conscious of the threat of nuclear war and really conscious of the vanishing of endangered species and really conscious of global warming all when I, you know, really starting when I was about four or five years old and having that as a constant background for me um, made it very hard to relate to other kids. I also had, um, a lot of challenges around fine, both fine and gross motor skills, some of which I'm beginning to feel like probably had more have more to do with um, with trauma than they do with inherently with my neurobiology, and that's one thing that's really hard to tell when we're talking about what does it mean to be an autistic person in this world is I don't know a single autistic adult who hasn't had a significant degree of relational trauma along the way. And a lot of the things that end up being most challenging for us in terms of reaching points of sensory overwhelm and in terms of feeling disconnection also are symptoms of complex trauma. And so I feel like after the revolution, we'll find out what it really means to be autistic. But um, I also grew up without anybody knowing quite what was going on with me. Um, you know, it wasn't until the 1990s, until I was in high school, that Hans Asperger's work was translated from German and really opened up the whole perspective of what autistic people 
were and broadened the definition of that spectrum. Um, nobody, even among the neurologists and psychologists I was being sent to as a child, um, had enough information to recognize what was going on for me. And so I didn't have a whole lot of framework for understanding what was different. And I went from, as a very young child, having this inherent sense of the world as alive, of feeling other presences with me in the forest, of feeling a mountain as a living thing, to becoming increasingly dissociated and increasingly focused only on my thinking, talking mind, because that was the one thing that I had that was somewhat valued as a gift by people around me. And so, and I also struggled with really severe asthma and, you know, breath is a thread that connects us with the world. And I think a lot of that had to do with ambivalence about being embodied in this world and really severe depression pretty much from the age of three onward. Um, when I reached college, uh, my first experience with Sullivan gave me a little bit of an intuitive sense of what was going on, though I didn't have a framework for it, where I um, understood that my consciousness on psilocybin was as different from my ordinary consciousness as my was as different from my ordinary consciousness as my ordinary consciousness was from somebody else's ordinary consciousness. That somebody else on psilocybin was walking through the world in a way similar to the way I did every day. And then when I was on psilocybin, I was doing so more so. It actually felt a little bit more fluid and fluent in the world. But I still, and I also re began to reawaken my sense of connection with the world to a degree where I felt the entire mind of the forest spread out beneath and around me and understood there to be a conversation happening between everything beneath my feet, though I didn't yet know about such things as mycorrhizal networks. But I also, at that point, sort of threw myself into the full-time nonviolent revolution business and uh, really viewed my body as just something to put in the way of destruction and my life as just something to be lived um, in, or in resistance to the system. And I knew... Everything I was saying no to and nothing I was saying yes to and reached a point where everything for me was really collapsing. My health was horrible. And I had grown up with the story that our family just had bad genes and just had bad health. And so it didn't really matter what we did. Uh, but my health was horrible. I was a junk food vegetarian. And because I was... Um, working nonprofit jobs uh, where I didn't have a lot of money and where I would work strange hours. I ended up eating mostly from, from convenience stores. And exercise was that thing that sadistic football coaches had yelled at me about in gym class uh, growing up. And um, 
other people's bodies were a blessing, but mine was a curse from my perspective. And um, I was at a point in my life where nothing was making sense. And so um, I leapt at the next opportunity to step outside my framework of reality and ended up finding myself in Oaxaca in southern Mexico in the wake of the military and the police brutally crushing an uprising there that had begun with a teacher's strike. And while I was there, I struck by several things. One was that I was coming from this position of tremendous relative power and privilege, but I was involved in trying to make very minute changes to things like the rules that the state of Maine used in purchasing uniforms so we might have an influence on sweatshop conditions. And here were people who had next to nothing, who had carved out an entirely new reality for themselves for a period of six months while standing up against this overwhelming force. The second piece that I found there was the profound connection people there had with their ancestors and with the land and with the corn. And I understood that to be at a deep level, to be what was missing from my life. But I also understood that I had made a terrible mistake by trying to find that in other people's lives. And so I came back from there with my heart really broken wide open and did what every easily overwhelmed introvert should do in that situation. I went to a dinner party in Boston. <laughs> And uh, after many excruciating conversations with people who vaguely knew I had been somewhere were asking how my vacation was, I found somebody who felt really different. And I noticed she was wearing a white crescent moon necklace around uh, her neck. And she told me that she was an herbalist and that necklace had been given to her by her teacher, Rosemary Gladstar. And we began to speak, and this woman, uh, Misha Schuler, began telling me about um, how she was learning to listen deeply to the plants and about the ways in which she was working um, with women around fertility and contraception to help reclaim control and connection with their own bodies. And suddenly that was something that struck me as far more radical than any blockade of a weapons plant that I'd ever been part of. It was something that really went at the core logic of the culture. And I left that night, and several weeks later, uh, she called me up on uh, New Year's Eve, and I had gotten really, really sick. Growing up asthmatic, my lungs were my vulnerable place, carrying all the grief of so many people that I didn't know how to process. Um, I developed a bronchitis that was turning into a pneumonia. And uh, after we talked for a while, uh, she hung up and then she called back. And she said, there's a plant who wants to help you. She has a deep resinous root and a bright yellow flower. And she pulls up what's, what's held deeply in your lungs. And her name is Ella Campaign. And I went that afternoon and bought my first um, ounce of alocampane tincture. And when I took the first few drops, I felt something unraveling in my body where I began to 
understand that the idea that my body was broken was a lie and that actually my body knew how to heal. And that afternoon, I went out walking in the forest with my dog in the deep snow. And even though I was sick, I was breathing more deeply than I ever had before and breathing in the scent of spruce and pine. I felt uh, myself open to the world in a new way. And soon that began to make its way into my wanting to move my body as I had access to my breath. And I discovered that while I was never going to be a marathon runner, um, my body actually liked and was good at lifting heavy things. And so weightlifting became part of my life. And as the plants began to become more and more real entities to me, um, my relationship to food started shifting and I became um, irresistibly drawn to salmon at the supermarket one day <laughs> and then began uh, integrating local meat into my diet because the distinction between animal consciousness and plant consciousness and human consciousness no longer seemed quite as strong a distinction. And so my body began shifting in its experience. And then finally, I found myself um, that spring in the wake of simultaneously having a breakup and having the funding run out for my job and not knowing what I was going to do next, going into the forest and praying to get lost. And I started following all the places in the woods where the Usnia lichen had fallen on the ground and going deeper and deeper into the forest until on familiar trails, I was lost. And I stood in the middle of a grove of trees and closed my eyes and I felt the usnea working its way through the tendrils of my heart, working its tendrils through, uh, through the cracks in my heart and making me anew and telling me that I could carry its medicine with me and that a part of its medicine for me was accepting breath as a thread connecting me to the world and accepting and embracing my own power that I had spent a lifetime rejecting my power because I rejected the way that our culture treated power. But that in doing that, I was giving all of my power away to the very culture I was trying to dismantle. So that summer, I lived on a friend's land in Maine and spent my days wandering in the forest and the fields, listening to the plants and my nights reading. Then I went back for one more attempt to work in the nonprofit world in Boston, um, where I was working with families who had loved ones in the military and were opposed to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and having them tell the stories of their suffering. And what I discovered over time was that having people repeat their stories of suffering for news cameras over and over again actually was making people sicker. And uh, that every time I would talk with someone trying to prepare them for an interview, the plants would want to come in and help. And so I tried to get more herbal education. I first applied for the beginning program at NERB school and they told me I knew too much. So I applied for the intermediate program and nobody else applied. And I applied for the uh, 
And so they invited me to sit in their practitioner circle and hear them talk about cases. Well, I also began seeing my first few clients. After a while, everything really began breaking open for me again. So I went into the forest, went into the White Mountains in New Hampshire, and with um, good friends supporting me, I fasted for four days alone. And on the third day of the fast, the usnia came to me again and told me that I needed to listen to the call of the plants and deepen my work with healing. And I said, but how can I do that when there's so much suffering? How can I tend to one person at a time? And the usnia said, listen, I grow in the wounded places on the tree producing medicine that heals the tree's body and the wound is where the healing comes. Find the wounds, bring the healing that comes and each heart will become the alchemical alembic that produces the medicine that can transform the culture. Every wound on every heart you come across is a trace of the violence of this culture. Every scar on every body is a trace of the violence of this culture. Uh, go tend to those places within people and the medicine will arise. So I quit my job, moved to Maine. Um, I thought I was going to be moving into a yurt and helping one family out if they had any health care problems. I'd only ever seen three clients before. But suddenly I found myself um, living in a moldy old van um, and uh, running a free clinic at uh, weekly potlucks in a friend's barn, and then running first aid operations at a uh, at a festival, sort of thrown into the deep end um, with the plants as the only medicine available. And I thought I had made a terrible mistake. And then I went to hear. Um, I went to spend a weekend with Stephen Buner teaching in Vermont. Some friends had given me money to go uh, study with him for a weekend. And as he began, he began reciting that passage from the secret teachings of plants that so many of us have fallen in love with, about how when we eat the wild, it begins to transform us. But then he goes on to talk about how our hair grows long and ragged, and I was putting my hands in my hair, and then the suit of clothes we wore no longer suits us. And our, and our speech becomes strange and poetic. And then I realized, wait a second, this wasn't a metaphor. You bastard. <laughs> I ate the wild. <laughs> and he recognized what was going on and uh, pulled me aside and let me know I was in exactly the right place and doing the right thing, that if I trusted this calling, that um, I would be deeply supported in it. And that became true. A short while later, I met Marky Flint, who became a mentor and helped me fill in some of the holes in my education. And the rest is a rambling, winding story of its own. But that's how I came from being the lonely child wandering on the playground, worried about nuclear weapons, to the herbalist in the hut at the edge of the village. Oh, but the other interesting thing in that process was coming into relationship with embodiment, which happened in part through the ways that the plants worked with me, bringing me more deeply into my body. 
but also uh, with my magical work, working in a tradition that says we need to embrace the fullness of who we are, the wild part of us that is animal and the divine part of us that is infinite and part of the co-creation of everything alongside the human part of us. And so coming into a place of more deeply embodied presence through work with magic, through work with plants, through the wonderful support of uh, some amazing somatic counselors, um, and coming to find deep joy and embodiment, and discovering that things that I thought were inherently unavailable to me were completely available to me once I showed up here fully. So, uh, you know, they always say you don't, nobody forgets how to ride a bike. Well, I forgot how to ride a bike because when I was a kid, I was so disembodied that rather than learning it as a felt sense of muscle movements, I learned it as a remembered series of steps. And so when I tried to ride a bike again as an adult, I couldn't. And I took that for a while as, well, I just have this inherent disconnection from physical reality. But I have lately um, begun uh, boxing lessons with a personal trainer. And as I've been engaging that new form of movement, I've discovered that, oh, actually, when I bring my awareness into my feet on the ground, I have this whole different relationship with my location in the world and with how my body moves and experiences things that I can even close my eyes and still hit a punching bag. Uh, it's kind of like Jedi training in some ways, <laughs> but um, in coming to that and discovering the ways in which coming into embodiment is also the way that we find our ways out of the webs of the repeated thoughts and feelings and sensations of trauma um i've found a deeper and deeper calling to helping other people discover that possibility as well yeah i i appreciate that i am i'm also on a path of deeper embodiment and getting out of my freaking head. I, I feel like that's one of the main things that this podcast has done for me. Actually, each guest somehow gives me this piece that helps me um, step more and more deeply into my body. And I know you call yourself a mm. somatic therapist, and I've always uh, gleaned little gems from your work. Um, your Ella campaign story uh, reminds me of a quote of yours. This is something I read you say that I had written down for today. And I just want to speak it because it sort of um, puts that story in a bigger context for, for our listeners. You say that some of the most profound healing occurs in the way plant medicines can shift our experience of our bodies and our sense of ourselves in relation to the world around us. That's yeah. not something I hear a lot of herbalists say, you know, especially uh -huh. with the like this for that approach to herbal medicine. Oh, take this Ella campaign for your lungs. Um, but what that did to you was really change the way that you experienced being in your body and experienced breath. Yeah. And so it's interesting. There are a lot of people who will proclaim skepticism about um, the capacity of a single drop of rose tincture to transform someone's experience. 
I also find a lot of those people deny that when they want to introduce a class of students to rose, we'll have them taste a drop of rose tincture or a sip of rose tea and observe everybody have this experience that can't really be pharmacologically explained. And this will happen if you don't tell the person what the plant is. Uh, you will still have people in the room have similar experiences that reflect um, the, some of the same core qualities of encounter with the plant and experiences that are also different that reflect the differences in each person's felt sense of reality. But those changes happen long before any molecules would have a chance to make it into the bloodstream from an oral dose. They happen within seconds. And at dosages far lower than we understand pharmacological actions to occur. And so my sense is what's happening in these instances is that we are undergoing somatic shifts, shifts in what it feels like to be embodied in this moment that are the result of our sensory encounter with that plant, which does to some extent include its chemistry because each of its molecules has a unique electromagnetic signature which uh, will create a corresponding fluctuation in the electromagnetic field of our heart, which will then create, as Stephen Buhner explains to us, a uh, change in our emotional felt sense of presence. At the same time, the scent and the taste and the feel of the plant coming into our presence bring shifts in what it feels like to be us embodied in this moment. And it all brings us back to this interesting question about um, what are we doing when we are engaging in healing and transformation? So if we're working from the framework of a mechanistic culture, we have the idea that, the, that, a, that a sick or injured body or sick or injured mind is broken in a predictable way and we can do predictable things to fix the broken pieces or reroute the broken processes and then get things operating the way we expect them to. But um, if we are working instead from the understanding that is the oldest understanding in the world, that our bodies are alive and so is the world, or the newest understandings, which are that our bodies are complex self-regulating systems nested within complex self-regulating systems, then we can begin to understand that, oh, what systems theory tells us is complex systems um, will make profound changes in the result, to subtle, in the result of subtle inputs of information uh, that will change the performance of the whole. And so if we look at our bodies, everything that's happening in our bodies in any given moment is a result of the signals being carried by our primary signaling systems, our nervous system that is carrying sensation and emotion and information about it, our endocrine system, which is carrying some elements of feeling in the watery parts of our body that it flows and but which is also signaling organs to take particular actions. And our immune response, which is 
what is a healthy part of this ecology and what is not, what needs to be eliminated and what needs to be protected. And all of those, it turns out, operate as one fluid, complex, multivalent signaling system. And what the signals are based on is on our perception of what's happening in this particular moment. And if we are calm and embodied, then we will respond in fluid ways that are coherent with our experience. But if we are stressed or are living with trauma, our bodies will respond in ways that are often out of sync with what's going on and get stuck in a particular response. So um, I find that changing the information coming into the body through very subtle signals can change that whole operation and bring really profound healing that then allows the organism itself to come back into coherence. Now, additionally, when we think about it, our nervous systems and endocrine systems didn't evolve in isolation. The plants we interact with have so many compounds that are similar to our neurotransmitters and similar to our hormones that when we come into our bodies, we recognize as important carriers of information. And even when we get to the subpharmacological levels, the electromagnetic impression they make is one that gives us information about just a different possibility of how to show up embodied in the world in this moment. And for all of our oldest ancestors, this would have been a constant biochemical conversation with the world as they sweated, as they urinated, as they breathed. Um, Molecules from within their bodies would go out into the world and plants would breathe them in and change their chemistry subtly in ways that would balance that, which would then be taken in by our bodies in turn, which would put out different chemicals in return. There would be this constant conversation. We co-evolved with the signaling molecules of plants and fungi being present in every breath and every sip of water in every bite of food, and every moment that we brushed against the plant. Um, removed from that place, we have to find ways to recreate that. And one great way is bringing people into the forest. But we can't always bring everyone into the forest all the time. So I find that with um, bringing very small amounts of plant, of plant medicine that bring that subtle sensory electromagnetic impression, we can bring those kinds of subtle inputs of the forest or the meadow or the desert to the person wherever they are in whatever moment they are. This is what you call drop doses? Yes, which for me um, developed very much uh, in following the work of my friend and mentor, Matthew Wood who in turn uh, drew this method from the eclectic physicians. So you, you have this very rich relationship with your ancestry. And there's, there's so many threads to follow here. And I'm, I'm open to your answer going wherever, wherever it goes. But I just, I, yeah, I want to hear more about your ancestral connections, the meaning of the name Donahue, what you know about the people you're descended from, and about the trip you took to visit your ancestral homeland of Ireland for the first time last year. Huh. So Donahue is an anglicization of Donaha, which means um, sons of the brown warrior. 
And um, my dad's people um, trace their history back in the area around Killarney in County Kerry in the west of Ireland. As far back as memory goes and further back. Um, so the people who we call, who speak Gaelic, um, who some call Celts, although that's a word that can cause all kinds of anthropological fights these days. But uh, the, so I will say the Gaelic speaking peoples of Ireland and Scotland um, had their uh, came out of the Galatia region of Spain. Um, I think it was around between 1000 and 700 BCE. Um, and um, it was really the sons of one chieftain sailing on one boat. And our lineage dates back to those people who in turn were descended from people who originated in um, the valleys uh, between India and China and then migrated through Siberia and through the Middle East into Spain, then sailing up to Ireland and Scotland, probably having picked up some North African influence along the way. And so the brown is probably a reference to um, some of the North African and Middle Eastern genetics that would have been carried by those people. Um, and of course, far enough back, we all go to the same uh, the same valleys in um, in East Africa. But um, there were when those people arrived in Ireland, there were already um, several groups of people. And among those were the people, were the Tuahadadanan, the children of Danu, who um, we are told spoke a language that carried the sound of water flowing over stone and wind flowing through trees, and who could call the storm and call the sun, and knew the ways of plants, and whose music was otherworldly and whose technologies appeared as magic to those who, who came from far away and encountered them for the first time. Um, in my magical lineage, we speak of these people, and um, they are the ones who, in English, are often called fairies. And uh, speaking of their way of being, um, my teacher's teacher's teacher, Francesca de Grandis, said two things. She said, it's a way that is kinder and less civilized. And that is uh, marked by one law and one law only. Love is repaid with love. Betrayal is repaid with avalanche. And so... Among those first Galatians arriving in Ireland, um, there were only men. But they all ended up bearing children by women from among uh, the people who were there before. So I trace my lineage to both groups of people. So the story, which we can understand on many, many 
levels um, about what happened to those people is that after a time, the way of the invaders became too brutal and harsh for them. And Mananan Maclear, uh, son of the sea god, gathered his people at the mouth of the Boyne, and they disappeared beneath the waters and beneath the hollow hills to become the Dinashi, the people of the mounds. Now those mounds that they were the people of are the ancient ceremonial mounds and the ancient burial mounds of the indigenous Neolithic peoples of Ireland. Um, so there is a sense in which this is the speaking of the ways in which older ways of knowing were driven underground. And there also is a very real presence that exists around those hollow hills of people whose way of being was driven out of the world, but whose way of being is fundamental to the rightness of the world. And for a long time in Ireland, those places have been guarded and protected, respected. And even during uh, the centuries of British occupation, uh, people still uh, maintained their respect for those places. Now, my people came from the West. Um, if you, you may have heard the, ex the expression beyond the pale to describe something which is considered culturally unacceptable. Well, the pale was actually a literal wall that uh, British mercenaries built to try to separate the more easily subdued east of Ireland from the Wild West, where um, up until the time of my great-grandparents, um, and in some re regions still today, Irish remained the primary language. My great-grandmother would have grown up surrounded by English, first uh, among the occupying soldiers and then among the people in Massachusetts. But she spoke only Irish until the day of her death. Um, my great-grandfather came over at the age of 21 with a price on his head, having been part of a, a generation that felt that to take the risk of taking up arms against the invaders was better than to starve and better than to have the cult your culture stripped away. And he came from people who had a long history of resistance. So um, Killarney, uh, where um, our clan settled, uh, which means a church of the blackthorn fruit. Kill is church, and Erni is slow, the fruit of the blackthorn. Um, exists on these beautiful lakes, and uh, when uh, first Viking and then Norman invaders began to come, Irish chieftains began building castles, and there was a castle of ours there that I visited. And the last chieftain of ours to rule that castle was one of the last openly pagan chieftains in the west of Ireland. And on Beltane, uh, the festival of ecstasy that's coming up soon, uh, he called together everybody in his realm and spoke all the truths that they could not bear to hear spoken. And then walked out onto the lake and disappeared where it's said that every seven years at Beltane, on, on Beltane at dawn, he rises up on a white horse with a retinue 
of the fairy court behind him to walk his lands again. So I had some interesting interaction with that story. Um, early in my training in the fairy tradition, we were instructed to make relationship with our ancestors by learning at least enough of an ancestral language to be able to make a prayer calling on our ancestors. And when I did, my Irish ancestors began coming in very, very strongly. Uh, and during that time, um, someone very close to me, a dear beloved, had a dream where she saw me standing at a banquet, speaking all the truths nobody could bear to hear, and she, and she was standing behind me while I stood in front of people just letting the truth roll and letting the anger come flying toward me. And she had never heard that story of my ancestor, and when I told her when she told me of the dream and I told her of that story, uh, we both had chills go up our spines. Um, all the more so for me when I showed up at the castle and, first of all, was mistaken by a number of tourists as part of the tour. And secondly, when I stood in that same banquet hall and looked out on the lake, remembered walking out through that window onto that lake. So there is a sense of a memory that lives in me whether it's that I lived in another body in the same lineage and was that person, or whether it's that that person's memory was passed down to me genetically, or whether there's any difference between the two is hard to say. We know so much about, we're learning so much about the genetic inheritance of trauma, but I believe if we inherit trauma we also inherit memories of resilience and memories of resistance and memories of wholeness. And so um, following Stephen Buhner's work of following heartbeats backward through history, I've done a lot of work with tapping in with those last well ancestors in my lineage. Um, and I later would learn of the work of Daniel Four, who works with connecting people with their last healthy ancestors to heal everything that's come in the time between us. And I find that there are ways in which when I taste plants that were connected with my ancestors or when I hear the Bauren, the uh, Irish frame drum, or when I hear the Irish language spoken, or speak some of the very few words of language that I have, <coughs> something really awakens and comes alive in me that remembers a different way of being in the world. And when I finally had a chance to make it to Ireland last year and walk in the places where my ancestors walked, I felt that come in in a deeper way, and I felt welcomed by the land in a way that I had never felt welcomed before, and I felt, <coughs> excuse me, a way of being that my ancestors had that was born of the forms of that land <coughs> um, really come alive for me and in me and through me in a way that I didn't know possible. So uh, one thing that happened while I was there, um, well, a couple of things that happened. One of the first things that happened was that my first tears came when I saw the bilingual road signs. I didn't expect that, but um, the Irish language 
was outlawed for centuries. And in fact, I learned a lot about my Irish history from uh, indigenous people in British Columbia who were recent survivors of the what's euphemistically called the residential school system there, where until 1996, indigenous children were kidnapped from their families and taken to schools where they were forced to speak only English and had their culture stripped away. It's still happening to a large extent. It's just happening now through the foster care system instead of through one single institution. But they told me that the British had developed that system first in Ireland mm-hmm. and then um, came to and then brought it to Canada because they found stripping people of a language was an important way of disconnecting them from the land. And when I learned about that, and then when I later learned that until 1600, Ireland was cut, was 80% covered with forest. And it was the um, it was the British drive to colonize Ireland to cut down the forest to have timber to make slave ships and merchant ships for the invasion of the Americas that caused that forest to be destroyed. I began to understand in a different way that I was descended from colonized people as well. But when I saw the road signs written in, written in both languages, I came to understand in a way that I hadn't understood before what, what North American indigenous friends have told me about the experience of beginning to recover their language. Uh, so that brought me to tears immediately. A short while after, I um, was taken to visit a well that's sacred to breed um goddess of the three fires and also to saint bridget who the two there's no real separation between the two in the irish understanding of the world and which where people have been bringing offerings for thousands of years and um that morning i learned for the first time about the history of the destruction of the irish forest Well, I was also getting news that the forests in uh, the Columbia River Gorge, where I live, were on fire back home. And so uh, I went to the well with a really heavy heart that day. And the wells, the wells in Ireland are so, in the wild water, are so much the heart of tradition. So much so that the late Irish philosopher John Moriarty said that in an Irish animist culture, uh, the reason for learning to speak was so that we could say that our river has its source in another world well, and so that everything we say about the stars and the hills might be a way of saying a hazel spreads its branches over the river, over the well in the other world where our river has its source. So water, sacred waters, flowing from the other world are a huge part of Irish tradition connecting people to the living world. And these wells that are this wild spring water that's been underground for hundreds of years that bubbles up to the surface, filtering through peat that is uh, the fossilized remains of forests and bogs and um, 
the meadows that lived there before and carrying some of their medicine filters up to the surface. And people go there and bring prayers for healing and they go out to the hawthorn tree that grows behind the well and they tie their prayers there. And so I was there that day with a really big prayer. And I was wearing around my neck um, a necklace made from the tip of the antler of a stag uh, from the land where I live that someone I love had given me the first day I moved here. And while I was at that tree praying, uh, praying for the healing of the forest, I felt Bridget's voice calling to me and telling me to leave the necklace. And I pretended not to hear, and I tried to walk away, and then I turned back, and I heard the voice again. And then finally I heard the voice a third time, and I took the necklace off, and I hung it from the tree, and I just heard the reply, big prayers require big offerings. And I walked down to the bottom of the hill and didn't look back. And I was praying then also to know a different way of walking in the world that could bring healing. So a week later, I was out walking in the forest around the castle where my ancestors had lived and uh, walked into an area where the forest was beginning to thin and and moved towards meadows. And I went, I stood underneath an old oak, and I prayed to be shown a different way of walking in the world, and particularly a different way of walking in the world as a man. And walking up the road, all of a sudden, uh, this huge stag, a red deer stag, the red deer are elk. Um, This is the last wild population of red deer in Ireland uh, is in that forest. Uh, There are reintroduced populations elsewhere. And his antlers were as wide as my arm span. And he looked at me for a moment as though he was going to charge me. And then he turned and cantered confidently across the field, trying to lead me away. And then when I didn't follow, he circled the herd three times. And when he saw that I wasn't going to pose a threat, he went and sat in great repose beneath a lone tree in the middle of the meadow until a doe came toward him and bent her haunches in his direction. And he stood up and he kicked at the ground and he rutted at the ground with his antlers and he let out a bugle and he chased her for a short time, but it was still not quite mating season. So she went off and he went off and he went back into his repose. And I realized in that moment that, uh, you know, the, the deer is associated with the chieftain and the king in the Irish tradition. And I used to think that people had gone looking for the most magnificent creature uh, and to use as the symbol for their leaders. But I understood that no, actually, the idea within Irish culture of the king or the chieftain as the one who is wedded to the land and gives their life for the people was the idea they learned from watching the way that the stag of the red deer herd cared for the herd and watching the ritual in which the red deer adorn themselves with branches and make leafy crowns uh, in autumn and battle each other ritually uh, for who will be the one who watches over the herd for the next year. 
well, they looked at that and modeled their their culture and their way of living after that. And I understood something very different in my body. And then when I came back here, I didn't quite know what to do with this new sense of being and whether I could carry that on this land. And one September day, I was out walking in the woods at dusk. And I began singing uh, the old marching song of um, the Irish Volunteers and the Republican Brotherhood, who were part of the Great Uprising of 1916, who sang, <speaking in Spanish> Hail, we welcome you home now that summer is coming. It was a song summoning, summoning the dead pirate queen, Grania Whale, to bring ghost warriors to, feed, to free the land. But as I sang the song, I heard an elk bugle in the distance in reply, and its voice was the same as the stag of the red deer herd, and I understood something about ways of being in the body in ways of being in a body on the land that are known to all who will listen deeply enough, but which for those of us who have been separated from those ways of knowing can often be best accessed through ancestral language and ancestral music and ancestral places. <laughs> Sean, those are such incredible stories. Wow, I'm um I'm speechless. Um <laughs> okay, let me shake myself out of my dream state <laughs> now. Um to to begin to conclude, let's let's weave let's weave this together, the uh the herbalism and your ancestry. And we are approaching Beltane. It's almost May and the hawthorns are sure going to be blooming. You have written that um, the thorn and the blossom of the hawthorn are equally the emblems of my art and my craft. And I, I know you have such a deep embodied relationship with, with this plant. And so perhaps you could just bless us with some of your hawthorn magic and medicine. Mm -hmm. Hawthorn is a really, really interesting tree. So it is thorny and formidable. Uh, and in Ireland, the lone hawthorn growing atop a mound in the middle of a field is called the straith. The straith is understood to be sacred to the dynasty of the people of the mounds and never to be disturbed. Um, and it's interesting, you know, in this culture, we have a lot of emphasis on belief. Belief is a fairly modern concept that comes about with religions that demand that you think a particular way. But wherever you encounter people who have elements of older culture alive, there's a different relationship with belief. Like, if you talk with people in the Irish countryside, if they believe, but if they believe in the Dainashi, if they believe in uh, the curse that will fall on somebody who harms a hawthorn, more likely than not, somebody might say no. But if you go to cut that hawthorn, everybody will will know the story of their grandfather's cousin who cut the hawthorn and woke up with the feeling of thorns in his bed every day for the rest of his life. Or the fellow up the road who cut the hawthorn and then saw it bleed. 
And so um, whether or not people believe they abide <laughs> by the rules of that other world, then there was rules being love is repaid with love and betrayal with avalanche. And a big part of the biggest betrayal we can play to the we can engage into the other world is to defile what's sacred to it. And Hawthorne being the gate atop, being the guardian of the gate atop the hollow hills, the thorns will stop those who come marauding and trying to take. But if you put yourself down beneath the hawthorn when it's in bloom, and breathe in its scent something very different will happen for you. So it's interesting, the shift in the scent of the hawthorn blossom over the course of the season. So uh, when the hawthorn blossom first blooms, it smells like sex. And when the hawthorn blossoms are getting old, they begin to smell like rotting bodies. And that's not a mistake. Um, the there is a compound in hawthorn flower uh, released by the hawthorn flower called triethylamine, which is contained in human sexual fluids, and which is also contained in um, is also released by our bodies when they die and decay. So uh, there's this there this deep mystery embedded in the hawthorn flower of sex and of death. And so early in the season, there are all these other aromatic compounds that bring us into a relaxed open place. And then that smell of sexual fluids brings us into an aroused place. And hence the celebration of the festival of ecstasy at this time. But I deliberately say ecstasy, not fertility, because um, the idea of fertility and of sex being tied to biological reproduction is very much a concept of this culture that would have been alien to my ancestors who recognized many different ways of people coming together ecstatically. And my feeling is that the ecstasy that we all raise when we engage erotically, authentically, um, opens the way for new things to enter into the world, whether those things happen to be human children or not. And I even have this deep felt sense that for ancestors who would celebrate with great ecstatic rituals together, uh, the energy raised by everybody would be part of opening the gate that allowed the spirits who are coming into the world to be born and the uteruses of some to come through. There, there would have been a more collective sense of we're opening the gate to bring the old ones back in in new bodies. Um, and then as the Hawthorne decays and those other aromatic compounds begin to fall away, it begins to smell more rotten and remind us of death. But, you know, sex and death are both places where when we engage them fully, our ego breaks down and our persona breaks down and the boundaries of self break down. Uh, the French call orgasm le petit mort for a good reason, because it is that momentary ego death that comes in any true wild ecstatic connection, whether it be one we classify as sexual in our culture or not. And Beltane exists on the Wheel of the Year opposite of Samhain, which is 
the blood harvest, the culling of the herds, and the time when the ancestors and the dead are most present. And uh, the my forerunner in my lineage, uh, Cora Anderson, uh, who grew up the child of an Irish herbalist in southern Alabama, or northern Alabama, rather, um, said that you must never doubt that there is only one gate, that the gates that open at Samhain and at Beltane are one and the same. The gate of death and the gate of sex are one gate. So sex and death are kind of the currencies and currents that ecologies function by. Um, we bring things into our ecological communities either through ecstatic expression or through uh, surrendering down into rotting back into the soil. So my path is, fund is fundamentally a path about um, helping people come into that deeper embodiment where they can have relation to their own ecstasy and relation to their own death uh, that allows them to be really present in the world as part of the world is alive. And in a culture that seeks to pre prevent us from entering those places, the thorn is necessary in order to carve out and protect those spaces. Well, thank you for expanding. Uh, this, this is one of the things that I appreciate so much about you is you're, all, you're always bringing the mythic elements in to your plant teachings. And I think for me and for so many others, that really just deepens the root of knowledge inside of us to have the bigger story, not not just the plant constituents, not just the alkaloids. So thank you. I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question. Thank you. And yeah, as we as we tie up, please tell people where they can find you, um, what offerings you have, if you have any events or anything coming up. Yeah, so a couple of things coming up. Uh, one is I will be very excited to see you and a lot of the rest of our beloved community at the uh, Good Medicine Confluence coming up in Colorado in May, which is always a highlight of my year and a coming back together of this gorgeous, authentic, emergent community of people engaging plants in, uh, in living ways to transform ourselves and our culture. Um, I am also, uh, I just finished a beautiful year of co-teaching with my friend Matthew Wood at the Portland School of Herbal Wisdom. He's moving on from that school to some independent projects, and I will be launching a new program, or we will be launching a new program this fall at the Portland School of Herbal Medicine, uh, somatic, practi somatic Herbalist Practitioner Training, where we will be um, welcoming people who already have some experience of plant medicine, uh, some relationship with some plants, understanding of medicine making, um, but who want to deepen their capacity to hold space for people and to be part of um, engaging plants and people together for transformation to learn some deeply intuitive, deeply embodied ways of connecting with plants and people 
am immersed in um, a curriculum where we treat the world and the body as fluidly alive and we'll be uh, having sessions for five days every other month from September to June um, where uh, people will delve in depth in learning how to sit and feel with people and plants uh, where they'll have an opportunity to both observe and experience um, consultations being done in a way that really centers somatic experience and where we'll be bringing in three really amazing teachers uh, ray swersey from north carolina of take care herbals who will be bringing in insights about querying herbalism as well as insights about what it means to really deeply nourish and care for ourselves as practitioners uh brant stickley brilliant classical Chinese medicine practitioner in Portland who will be teaching classical Chinese pulse diagnosis for Western practitioners with a good bit of Taoist cosmology and magic, no, no doubt, thrown in. And um, Kenneth Perfrock, who uh, is a naturopath in Arizona who has unique capacity to bring together the physiological and the biochemical and the mystical, and who will be teaching about um, working with the fascia. So uh, that will be a really beautiful opportunity to go in great depth um, into this kind, of, this kind of process of somatic herbalism. For people who want a briefer taste first, I'll be teaching an introduction to somatic herbalism at Pacific Rim College in Victoria, BC, the last weekend in May. And Thomas Easley uh, recorded me teaching at the Eclectic School of Herbal Medicine in, um, in North Carolina and has some videos of my teaching on somatic herbalism, which I think really represents some of the best teaching I've done. Uh, two other things I'll briefly, I realize I have a lot of things going on. I'll just briefly mention um, a few others. Uh, I do teach an online course called Wild Green Magic, um, where people receive uh, recordings and exercises twice a month to engage with connecting with plants magically. It began at Beltane, but it is a self-paced course, and you can go to my website, seandonahueherbalist.com, to get information about signing up for that course and beginning it. Um, I also do consultations over distance with people by phone and by Skype. There are details about that on my website. Um, and in person, um, at a naturopathic practice in Beaverton, Oregon, uh, one day a month. So people in my neck of the woods can come for consultations there. And finally, if you go to mountainsongexpeditions.com, you can find information about the community pilgrimage. My friend Murphy Robinson, who uh, is an amazing teacher of sacred hunting and sacred archery and a priestess of the reclaiming tradition of witchcraft, uh, and I will be co-leading to um, Southern Galway in June. <laughs> yeah, there's still a number of spaces available for people who might want to travel with us. So that's what I have coming up in a nutshell. Wow, that all sounds amazing. Um, thank you so much. I can't wait to re-listen to this already <laughs> and, <laughs> and take more of it in and and yeah, to see you in just a few short weeks in Colorado. Yeah, thank you so much for 
doing all you're doing to keep myth and medicine and ancestral connections alive for people. Mm-hmm. Thank you for taking these medicine stories in. I hope they inspire you to keep walking the mythic path of your own unfolding self. I love sharing information and will always put any relevant links in the show notes. You can find my blog, Handmade Herbal Medicines, and a lot more at mythicmedicine.love. While you're there, be sure to click the black banner across the top of the page to take my quiz, Which Magical Herb is Your Spirit Plant? It's a fun and lighthearted quiz, but the results are really in-depth and designed to bring you into closer alignment with the medicine that you're in need of. If you love the show, please consider supporting my work at patreon.com slash medicine stories. Um, there's some cool rewards there, like exclusive content, free access to my herbal ebook and online course, and the ability to chat with me. I am a crazy busy and overwhelmed mom and adding another project into my life with this podcast is a questionable move, but I'm also so excited about it and just praying that the Patreon will allow me the financial wiggle room to keep doing it. Another way that you can support if that's not an option is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and review the podcast. That would be super helpful. Thank you. And thank you to Marie Sue for providing the music that I use. That's Marie with two E's, S-I-O-U-X. This is from her song, Wild Eyes, one of my favorites. Uh, Check out Marie Sue. Beautiful music. Thank you. And I look forward to next time. Bye.